Hello, good friends. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Primal Goods Company. Primal Goods Company is what I use to find high-end supplement companies that only use quality ingredients and don't cut corners in producing their products. Their goal at Primal Goods is to offer folks like you and me complete nutritional packs for anyone, including competitive athletes, professionals, to cover all of our nutritional needs beyond whole foods. And hey, I mean, I believe that's what supplements are used for. Try to eat as many real foods as possible. But look, we're all busy and we need convenience from time to time. Their team's awesome. Uh, it includes top tier health professionals in the fields of physical therapy, nutrition, sports performance. And what they do is curate and consolidate the highest quality products on the market from trusted suppliers to help you reach your peak. They're pretty badass, and that's why I use them. You can try them out as well. To take 10% off your next order, go to primalgoodsco.com and enter the code LIFEREADY at checkout to receive 10% off your order and give them a try today. Uh, we're also brought to you by, full disclosure, a company that I'm a part of, Life Ready Foods. Uh, for the longest time, it was personally challenging for me to find a super clean supplement that doesn't wreck my stomach. I tend to have a pretty sensitive stomach uh, and not they're not filled with nonsense ingredients. I finally got fed up, uh, worked with a team to develop my own supplement line. So our first product is called Thrive Protein. It's a beef isolate protein powder that only contains three ingredients. Uh, and we created it mainly for three types of people. Uh, one, folks that felt like there wasn't a supplement for them that's non-dairy, non-gluten, and doesn't taste like complete trash. Uh, two, people that are trying to get in a little bit more protein to their diets, but look, may not have the time to cook. We're all pretty busy. And three, athletes that felt like they needed something more to support their workouts, but everything on the shelves was filled with garbage. So it's an awesome product, uh, non-dairy, gluten-free, no preservatives, no artificial ingredients, and it's only three supplements. So if any of those people sound like you and you'd like to give it a try, head to lifereadyfoods.com and enter lifeready at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. That's lifereadyfoods.com and enter lifeready at checkout. My guest on the show today is Dr. James Bagley. Dr. Bagley is an assistant professor of kinesiology and director of the Muscle Physiology Lab, co-director of the Exercise Physiology Lab, and research director of the Strength and Conditioning Lab at SF State. Jesus, this guy's busy. Uh, he teaches <clears throat> exercise physiology courses, and his research uh, interests include muscle physiology, advanced cellular imaging techniques, and sports performance enhancement. Today, we kind of get into everything, everything muscle from fiber type uh, to training, uh, and a really awesome twin study that they just published showing the difference between two identical tr twins, one trained, one untrained for, I think it was 30 years or something like that. I don't know. Uh, he's an awesome guy, and uh, it was a pleasure to have him on. So please welcome Dr. Bagley. Now, here is a man who will show you how to feel better, look better, and feel good. You follow your gut, do what you love to do. Welcome back, everybody. My guest, Dr. James Bagley. Thank you for doing this, sir. Thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, man. Um, I think we were talking about before doing uh, your new podcast. Yeah. Which will come out. Well, we're shooting for June. So okay. probably like July or August okay. whenever we get it done. But yeah, June's the the kickoff, hopefully. And uh, 
right now we're calling it Past Class Podcast. Past Class, P-A-S-S Podcast. Yeah, Physical Activity and Sports Science Podcast. So it's going to be kind of geared towards people that are interested in learning a little bit about sports science, maybe don't have a background in it. Um, Yeah, we'll just be interviewing people and it's going to be awesome, me and you. Yeah, I like it, bud. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be, um, I think, a fun way to introduce people to exercise physiology without, you know, having jargon that maybe a lot of people can't register with. Yeah, I think it'll be kind of, it's kind of like bringing uh, science to the masses is one of our, you know, main themes or main goals of it. Because for too long, I think people have thought of universities as this ivory tower, right, where, you know, all the information's locked up in this, you know, secret vault. Nobody else can access it and stuff. And a lot of it, it's because, like you said, jargon or things, you know, words, big words people don't understand. But I think part of it's just been the culture. Like, you know, we're over here, society's over there. But, you know, I think we are all in it together. So it's better for everybody to get this kind of information. Yeah. Plus, you'd have to pay, you know, X amount of money per year. You have to get enrolled in those places. And it's, you oh, know, yeah. it's I mean, always a challenge. Not everybody's going to go to university. And that's kind of, you know. The point is we can bring as much as we can to at least the, you know, a lot of it that we're going to go through is pretty, like, I would say basic concepts and quotes. Basic doesn't mean easy. It just means foundational. Yeah. So we'll cover the foundational stuff that you might get in undergraduate kinesiology or exercise science degree. Um, but yeah, in a more digestible kind of way. Yeah. I like that too. Yeah. Why do we, we don't call it university. We call it college. What's yeah. university calls it in uh, I think that's in Europe. Europe. Thing. Yeah. Go to university or go to uni. But and they don't just, call it the university either. They just say university. Yeah. Uni. It's just different slang. We say college, but I mean, yeah. Same thing. Go to school after high school. <laughs> go to school after high school. Do something else. Learn more things. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how we all started. I mean, I started at Cuesta College in San Luis Obispo with you. You know, mm-hmm. we played water polo there for a couple of years, swam. Um, and that's really what kind of, I, I wouldn't have gone on to university or to college if I hadn't gone on, gone to Cuesta first and kind of got my first experience in physiology and, and exercise science and stuff. I think we have a similar kind of background. Yeah, but I did. I went to Cuesta for three years before I figured out what I wanted to do in kinesiology, ex-phys. And then I had to make that decision. Mm-hmm. All right, if I want to go into kinesiology at Cal Poly, that's an extra semester of anatomy and semester mm-hmm. of physiology means like another year on top of my three years at a JC. Yeah. And then plenty of people go to school for seven, seven years. years. Yeah, they're called doctors. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was in the same boat because I, I was going to be um, so kind of believe it or not, I wanted to be a archaeologist. My uncle was an archaeologist. Mm. I loved Indiana Jones. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go find, you know, buried treasure and stuff. Get the whip. Yeah, get the whip. <laughs> yeah, get the cool satchel, right? Um, and so I was, you know, took this archaeology class at Cuesta, and it was cool. We went out and, like, did some Indian dig sites and found some pottery, and we were actually, like, at a trading post between two Native American tribes and digging, and I was like, oh, I found something. They're like, oh, yeah, it's a shard of some pottery. Collect it. And you know, it was cool, but then I was like, all right, what next? They're like, we're going to do this for eight hours all day, every day out <laughs> in, in the, the dirt, sun. in the sun. And it's just kind of like science too. It's the non-sexy part of science or non-sexy part of archaeology is really just sitting there and cataloging everything you find and digging and being really methodical. Um, I didn't end up doing archaeology, but I liked the class anyway. And then I went on and, yeah, you know, so. My first love was architecture. Yep. And then I one of the that. first classes that we did was an architectural drawing class. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I couldn't draw very well. 
and architecture maybe not the best path How's to your go. calculus too yeah, you gotta be pretty heavy on pretty math pretty terrible on math we were chatting about that earlier though re, re, yeah. like when people say oh this study shows x or like this study study shows y mm-hmm. i don't think people understand the research like when i say the word research most people go like yeah and you research stuff but they don't understand what how you guys research it yeah right that's a lot more detailed than most people realize. I think what you're thinking of when you say research is like I went online and Googled it or I went even went yeah. through published literature and stuff and you're, you know, researching like the library, like a montage scene from a movie and you're like pulling through the card catalogs and stuff. Like that's just a part of research. Real research, like not real research, but if you're doing basic science research or, you know, using the scientific method, it's really a method. So you would start with that go to do the background look, look up, make a literature review. That's part of your research. Then you find the questions that need to get answered. So you pose a question. Then you come up with a hypothesis based on your research. Then you design a study that's going to test this hypothesis. And usually it's not one study. It's not like, I want to find the cure for cancer. So here's one study to find that. It's going to be thousands or hundreds of studies. And then you keep refining the question, refining the answers. And it's just a long process. So every time we publish research, like I, I always use um, kind of the, the words of Dr. Lee Brown, one of my mentors at Fullerton is you're putting another brick in the wall. So mm. you're really building a wall of research with each brick. So one little paper, like I'm holding here, this is one brick. Yeah. It's not going to tell you the whole story. Yeah. Even by looking at that brick, you can get a little snapshot. You have to really back up, you know, and check out the entire thing. Right. Well, and doing like actually looking at studies and stuff like that is extremely time consuming, methodical too. I would just, went into the lab mm-hmm. uh, at uh, SF State the other day with you and saw mm-hmm. a student sitting there pulling individual muscle fibers mm-hmm. from a single muscle fiber. Or And you're like, hey, man, how many have you gotten done this hour? And yeah. he's like, two? Yeah. And like, great, just another 3,500 more muscle fibers. Yeah. It's like, geez. keep it up, keep up the work. Yeah, that's like um, the quote-unquote non-sexy part of science is you're like, I want to do muscle research. It's like, cool, sit in that chair, look through that microscope, and pull those fibers until you can't see straight. Like, that's pretty <laughs> much it. Put them in these little tubes, uh, and, you know, that's your whole day. <laughs> Rinse and repeat yep. for a few months, yeah. depending on – am I right? You did the math the other day. It was like per – Let's say you took one biopsy out of somebody's quad. Yeah. Is that where, where do you usually take biopsies? So, yeah, um, for muscle research, the most common is probably the vastus lateralis in your quads. It's la- it's on the outside, right? And it's easily accessible, um, big muscle. You use it for most, you know, lower body exercises. So that's yeah. most common. But, yeah, we pulled out of the vastus lateralis. And you get one sample, you know, will have thousands of individual cells in it. It's only about the size of a pea. Um, each cell is like thinner than a human hair. So think about that. You're using tweezers to pull these out of this sample um, and then individually cataloging these fibers, putting them in a tube, numbering them, labeling them, and then that has to get sent to the next step and the next step. And so if you mess up in one part, you know, you might not even know like you're screwed. You have to get everything right the whole time. So it's super time-consuming, methodical. Yeah, because I think you had told me that if you don't, separate them down to the individual fiber so like you can look at what looks to be an individual fiber and it's actually two right yeah right they're so small um yeah and i can post some pictures up online if if yeah we'll link out to the show notes yeah so you can see some pictures yeah we actually have some videos of some of our grad students pulling fibers so i can post those up for you guys we can link those out yeah Yeah, yeah. it'll be cool because in in 
you can't really appreciate it until you see the scale of everything. So imagine you have a dime there, basically like the letter, I don't know, like D on that dime will be this, like the size of the bundle of the fibers that you're pulling. And oh then within that, the hole in that D would be like smaller than the fiber. So like, you know, you're looking through a microscope to do yeah, this. Course, you can't course, do this with the naked eye. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Do you have pictures next to, it'd be fun to put a picture next to. I've got some, some things that, uh, yeah, we can show you. I think I do actually have a picture next to some change so you can see how big the whole sample is you get. You know, obviously we're not taking a whole muscle out of somebody or something unethical no. like that. We're just taking smalls. I'll take your whole muscle if you want. Give it up. You don't need your quad. You only got two, right? Does that affect, Have has anybody done a, like a clinical or multiple clinical studies on the effects of biopsies? Like let's say you're a high, high level professional athlete and you do 40 biopsies over your career or something like that? Has it, yeah. anybody ever tested like the, like let's just say a one rep max leg extension strength test? For, you know what I mean? Is it how? I don't think you would lose any strength or any performance okay. or anything. I mean, I've had over 25 biopsies on myself. My performance losses are from not training. <laughs> They're not from that. Like you're not going to notice it. I mean, we've got studies, you know, I work with Dr. Andy Galpin down at Fullerton and I mean, they're doing studies where you'll do a couple biopsies, go do an exercise, and then come back and do more biopsies. And that's really common in the literature. So it's not going to affect performance really in any way. It just feels a little weird. Listen, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't the 10 beers over the weekend, okay? <laughs> yeah. It was because you guys did a muscle biopsy uh, and I lost all my strength. Right. It was my biopsy four years ago that <laughs> yeah. made me lose that My body composition didn't get worse with the pizza and the beer. <laughs> it had to have been... The muscle biopsy. No. Yeah, I don't think that would affect performance at all. Like I said, I've had dozens of them. It feels weird. Uh, I mean, it's all under local anesthetic, so you're okay. not feeling the actual needle. You know, if you can explain it, it would feel like you bump your leg on the side of a table, like a Charlie pinch horse. Or yeah, like, like a that. pinch. Yep. And then you know, the next couple of days, it'll just be like a like a small cut that you have to take care of. So, do you guys yeah. do topical anesthetic or? Um... It's an injection of lidocaine, so it's, um, yeah, it's, the injection feels like a bee sting. That's really the worst part. Like, if you went to the dentist and you had some teeth work done, same idea. And then we just take a small sample. Like I said, I've had dozens. We do, we just finished a study, actually, where we did multiple biopsies on each leg. So we looked at left leg versus right leg fiber type. Oh, okay. And, you know kind of the main finding was that is that it can be different between limbs so you have to take that into account too depending on what you do like say you're an elite maybe an elite nfl kicker or something sure, yeah. guaranteed they're going to have some differences between legs because they're using one leg so different yeah you're like a uh athlete that uh takes place in the high jump or something where you're most likely they jump off one leg mm -hmm. right i think so right, like yeah con your entire career has been jumping off of one leg mm -hmm. versus the other it's mm -hmm. gotta be different in have you done? Have you guys had any research that showed uh, different muscle fibers between the legs? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we did that. So we did. It was just recreationally trained, resistance trained guys. Uh, we did biopsy on both legs, asking what their dominant leg was. Asked them multiple ways, like okay. which leg do you kick with? If you fell, which leg would you land on? Blah blah blah. All this. Do you and, push him in the back yep. and see which leg? <laughs> and you know. The, the data was hard to sift through because we found, yeah, some people actually have huge differences. Some wow. people don't. So it's just kind of something, a, another control. If we're going to do a study that's long-term and we want to know fiber type changes over time, we'd probably look at the same leg pre and post. But just kind of, you know, yeah, it's good to know. Um, 
But yeah, that's how that's another brick in the wall. That's one study we threw up there because we had a question. And we're like, I wonder if it's different. Design a study and figure it out. And then you would need to replicate that study another 999 times to, you know, start looking at uh, the bigger picture of what that even means. Yeah. Well, cause one, so with experimental research, we have to take a sample of people out of the general population. So mm -hmm. if we're going to generalize the study to resistance trained males, we obviously can't take every resistance trained male in San Francisco and study them. Yeah. So we'll take 10 or 20 or 30 or however, the most we can do that's, you know, feasible and then we run statistics to find out if that's significant in that sample, if that could be generalized to the general public. So yeah, so we can say in that our population this is true, but we don't know in females or in you know sedentary males or in elite male. Like so, yeah. you could. That's one other thing you can redo the exact same study with a different population, barely a different age group, barely, or just change one variable and mm. you have a whole new study and just keep doing it. Yeah, these people are resistant trained, but have smoked for five years. Yep, that could be a variable you're changing or yeah. looking at covariate, and that could affect who knows everything. Yeah, probably. These people were the people that were stoked enough to get free pizza and come into the lab today. Yep, and that's how it usually is. Well, that's another. If you notice, if you look through a lot of scientific literature. Who's your subject population? Eight. Males 18 <laughs> to 24. Yeah, and who's that? That happen to be on campus the day, have nothing to do, and they're designed for free right. pizza. And they're the easiest ones to get. Yeah. And I think in physiology, that's not necessarily a bad thing because human physiology uh, between all of us is going to be relatively the same. We have the same cell signaling stuff. But if you start doing studies in psychology, yeah. that's been the problem in the field. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm just going to spitball here, but the, you know, that's been kind of the problem in the last several decades in psychology is replicating studies because they're done in Western countries, you know, mm. higher socioeconomic class, mainly white young males. Mm. You do that same study in somebody from Southeast Asia, and you're going to get totally different psychological variables because they had different, you know, upbringing. Yeah, yeah. Things. different biology, mm -hmm. different culture, different... Um, I guess kind of like social economic status, right. different yeah. drugs or not drugs down there, like mm -hmm. depending on prescription drugs, prescription, like psychotics and antipsychotics mm -hmm. that they've been prescribed or not been prescribed. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's all different. How their society views drugs versus like maybe how our society views drugs. It's maybe a little easier to dough out here, yeah. you know, depending on, um, yeah, I guess where you come from. And so, yeah, but psychology is is one thing. But in physiology, if we went to Southeast Asia, you know, Europe, North America, South America, and we did that bilateral kicking study with fiber typing, you know, we're all humans, we yeah. all move. So we can assume that it'll be similar between groups, right? Close. There's going to be some differences, but sure. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, depending on fiber types. And that's pretty crazy. The stuff that Galpin's coming up with too, with uh, the changes in fiber type. Yeah, like fiber type shifting between um, like with exercise or with aging or detraining. That's a big deal. So, you know, kind of a little background is that, you know, humans have different muscle fiber types, which really means we have different cells that are good for different things. You know, we have people typically say slow twitch and fast twitch fibers. Mm -hmm. That's the general idea. But that's just one way to explain the fibers, how fast they can contract. Another way is to explain them metabolically like what's their you know what kind of metabolic enzyme profiles do they have and so many different ways to measure it and the way we do it is this protein called myosin heavy chain mm. we say mhc so mhc1 is a slow twitch 
MHC2A is a fast twitch. Then we actually know now that it's not just slow and fast. You have MHC2X, which is a super fast fiber. Yeah. And then in between that, you have these hybrids. It's like a 1 slash 2A or a 2A slash 2X. And these hybrids aren't necessarily a good thing. We actually find those a lot in people that are detrained or older or uh, um, people that have gotten to car accidents and have spinal cord injuries. They might have a lot of hybrids because the muscles don't necessarily know what to do. So they start to kind of try to do everything. But they're not doing okay. it well. So they're almost like unsure muscle fiber types. They're not... They're not specific. They're not maybe don't know exactly what their function is supposed to be. So they just ponder in the middle a little bit. They, yeah. Know. So if they're not hmm. being used, then they'll start to shift to something that's more that's easier for the body to hold on to. That's eat like it's not as metabolically active. Interesting. So the whole idea, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. It's absolutely true. But the cool thing about muscle is that it'll respond really quick to what you do to it. So if you are untrained and you want to go back and retrain or something, your muscles will come back a lot faster than things like bones and tendons and ligaments because those are much slower turnover. Okay. Or if you were trained at one point, then became detrained and wanted to train again, yeah, you'd be able to maybe get back to the same spot that you were at. Yeah. I mean, all depending, right? It's a case-by-case basis. Right. That's that's like a big question that I've been thinking about the last, I don't know, four or five years since I got out of PhD school. And some questions I've had, but this, you know, this is the study, the holy grail of studies would be to see what happens if you did take, get a really hardcore training program, like 16, 20 weeks training, detrain or deload or unload completely, go to bed rest for several weeks or Mm. months, and then go back and try to retrain and see if you can retrain faster. That's the idea of muscle memory, not like muscle memory, like your motor learning and motor control, but muscle memory, like the cells remembering uh, where they were before. And that's kind of. Like where the field's going to try to figure out how that works. But you would need then people that were um, keen on training, which is probably people that if they're keen on training to begin with, they don't want to necessarily take a bed rest break yeah. for three, right. three months. <laughs> right. Hey, we know you love squatting every day and you're really good at it. Now for this part of the study, you're not going to do anything for three months. Mm-hmm. It'd be probably hard to get a lot of people that are like, okay, yeah, and that's, let's do that. Well, that's what I was talking about earlier is the sample that you choose. So yeah. we don't have to do 100 people in this study. This study is so intense. If we were to do it, we would probably do like eight or something like that yeah. and then run statistics and then. Try it. The only thing you couldn't do is then like uh, assess a causation or take that sample and say, hey, this is the entire population. You would have yeah. to put a... Um, caveat to that yeah you would say that this has been shown in humans in this population um and so what people are doing now there's been a lot of studies like that that i just explained it's like a training detraining retraining in animals and stuff like that like mice and rats that's what typically people study because i mean people are always like why do why do you do studies in mice and rats and stuff it's like well they actually have really similar genes Mm -hmm. and proteins as Mm -hmm. us and their biology you know you look at the genome of a mouse what do they say it's like 90 something percent the same as humans so i mean they're a mouse they're obviously different species <laughs> totally different but if we do something in them and it seems to work we do that same thing in humans we can kind of get some ideas about how the cells respond replicate that a little bit yeah, yeah. i mean a mouse cell if you pull it out of like i was talking about isolating fibers a mouse cell is about you know I don't know, spitballing again, 60 microns in diameter or so, and say a human's is 80 or 100 plus microns. So eight, human muscles are bigger. Yeah, and, of course. Yeah, but, but we have the same fiber types too. I mean, they have slow okay. and fast, and they actually have this 
2B type, which humans don't have, but you know, so like hy another hybrid. It's or, another uh, type of a fast fiber. So that's another crazy thing. Think about all the mammals, right? Everything from a rhinoceros and elephant down to a mouse and a blue whale. We on a blue whale. We all have similar fiber types, but the smaller animals have different isoforms or different types of these fast fibers because a mouse's legs move pretty fast yeah. just when they're walking. Look, you're looking like birds, or you know, mm -hmm. any kind of a, like a mammal that moves very quickly to us, but to them, they're moving normal speed. True. And so, and then an elephant again, they'll have you know less fast fiber types because they're moving pretty fast, but not compared to us or a mouse or something. So yeah. we all have the same, you know, we have the same genes as a mouse genetic makeup to make these fiber types, but they're actually producing them because they need them because they're mice. And then move quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the ones in our office do. Dang, we've got mice on, in, on campus. <laughs> no, no, not at, no, no. Uh, not at your school. No. Nowhere to be found. No. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, it's an old building. Yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered, I think a lot of stuff that uh, bugs me is, um, like, they'll somebody will tell me something, right? Oh, did you know this is caused by this? And my first question is always, where did you hear that? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, I read it on a headline. Mm. And I'm like, okay, you're so far removed from, right? Because that headline could have come from a study, may, maybe not, could have been a good study, yeah. could have been not. So like, is there an easy way for somebody that reads a headline and maybe that doesn't have access to the library of academic yeah. Pu academically published studies to find that and then I mean I don't I guess most people would read an abstract but I mean in every major newspaper there's going to be your health and science columns right and those are usually pretty sensational stuff like mm -hmm. oh you know this cures diabetes this does this I would say take every headline with a grain of salt and read it but they're going to cite an article that you may not have access to yeah. but if you click on that article they cite it'll at least give you the abstract and the abstract is a short synopsis of the article which again, I wouldn't go off of that for the entire article, but it's better than a headline. True. So you can read the title of an article. That'll give you something about it. Then you read the abstract. That'll give you a little bit more about it. But if you really want to get into the details, go into their results and see, see their controls. Nobody has time to do see, this. Like, yeah. I don't have time to do this for yeah. every study. I send grad students out to start, collect <laughs> papers and tell me, you know, give me the cliff notes on it. That's what you have to do when 10,000 papers are coming out every Jeez, month or something. Man. You know, it's yeah. the, there's more information out there than ever. So it's really hard to figure out what's true and what's not. And that's why we go to school and have to go to school for 10 years to figure out what's true. <laughs> and look at it. Yeah. And it's a lot easier for somebody that didn't go to school for that long to read a headline and say, that's good enough. Yeah, because you read you it know? and it's published and it yeah. seems in a legit you know, source. Somebody did their job at some point, yeah. hopefully, right? That's It's easier to say that, I guess. Yeah. That's yeah, hard, man. It's crazy. <laughs> not easy. Well, cool, man. What are you working on uh, recently? Yeah, so we've got a, kind of a lot of projects going on in the lab. I mentioned we're doing some stuff with Dr. Galpin down at Fullerton. Mm -hmm. um, kind of one of the main things I'm trying to wrap up now and write is a study on identical twins. So if you think about it, you know, like I said, we're doing, if we do a study on a population of resistance trained males, we can train them up and everything. How do we know that the genetics of one guy didn't make him you know, that much better than the other guys, which maybe didn't respond? Sure, yeah. There's always a guy in college that, drives by the gym while he's eating Chick-fil-A yeah. and he just 
grows stronger and bigger. And has an eight-pack abs. Yeah. And you're, you're like, like what? Yeah. How is this possible, yeah. man? And I'm trying, I'm starving myself swimming four hours a day and I still don't have eight-pack. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. So that's part of genetics, right? And it's like the only way in humans to tease out that kind of covariate or that, um, you know, control is to have identical twins or mm. have clones, which mm. we can't really yeah. clone. We, I mean, getting that. Well, I think CRISPR action. Or, getting yeah, there. side story. It's we could pro- probably clone humans right now. Not ethical. We're not doing the U.S. They might yeah. be doing it in some other countries, but we don't know about. No, possibly, yeah. but they don't. They cloned a sheep, you know, decades ago, not in the nineties. Yeah. So, and we wouldn't just clone humans for the sole purpose of hey, hey I want to see about this muscle study. study. No, yeah, <laughs> I want to see if uh, you know I could take a VO2 max out of somebody that's not trained. Let's clone this person just for this purpose. Yeah. Plus, that would take a whole lifetime, and people only live certain yeah. ages. So, yeah. The best thing to do is to find already born identical twins. Cloned people. Yeah, and uh, the twins we found were monozygous, which means they come from the same egg. Okay. So they're identical. There's dizygotic twins, which are non-identical twins. Sure, paternal so, versus Right, they have a really close genetics. Yeah. And then your next closest would be brother, sisters, you know, sure. siblings, Sibling. and then cousins, and then second cousins. And I mean, those, are, even if you're in the same family, you're going to find a lot of traits. So if you start studying one family versus, an, you know, yeah. You can find things, but... You look it, at the Gronkowski family, and every one of those brothers, I think there's five or so, all mm-hmm. have done something. Yeah. Rob, obviously, insane football player. Another guy's in tennis. Another guy, you know... That could also be all upbringing, too. Upbring- yeah, Probably upbringing, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But anyway, we were really lucky to come across a pair of identical twins in their 50s. So their middle age, 52, is when we tested them. Okay. Um, one of the twins is an elite Ironman triathlete. Like, so he's been competing for years, has been training consistently since he was 20. Um, you know, has a pretty active job, works as a, a physical education teacher, super active his whole life. He's recorded everything he's ever done. Ran, you know, tens of thousands of miles, logged everything, logged all of his performance. The other twin done nothing, you know, exercise wise. You know, he had a normal job, uh, as a delivery driver, maybe did a little walking, lifting and stuff. So our whole plan was to basically see what 30, 35 years of divergent physical activity patterns did to these sure. trends yeah. over time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, we we did a huge battery of tests on them, pretty much studied everything from body composition, muscle strength, muscle power, did muscle biopsies on them, looked at fiber type looked at gene expression of certain genes that are related to metabolism, genes related to inflammation. Um, Just do uh, body comp, VO2, right, yep. max. Yeah, um, we did DEXA. So DEXA oh, is a way to do gold, body gold comp. Standard. Gold standard. Yeah, it's um, an x-ray machine that basically measures your bone mineral density as well as your lean mass and fat mass. Um, yeah, VO2 max test, which we got them on treadmill, or in this case, we got them on uh, bikes, I believe. Yeah, and if yeah. we could take it, let's, before we keep going on the story, yeah, take a yeah. step back and um, let's chat about, because I think a lot of people throw that number out. I mm-hmm. have some buddies that are cyclists and mm-hmm. they'll kind of throw that out as like, a, oh yeah, this is really cool. But I don't know if A, they've ever done one or B, they kind of understand what that means, right? When you max. see somebody has a, yeah. a high VO2 max, right? And yeah. Like, what's an easy way to kind of break that down and... Like, why is it important? Yeah. Yeah, Why is it important? And and what does that mean, right? When you say VO2, like your VO2 max. So VO2 max actually stands for the volume of oxygen that you're consuming maximally. And so what does that even mean? Well, what is, think about when you're lighting a match, lighting a fire. What do you need for that? You need fuel. 
and you need oxygen. Mm. So when your body is burning calories or using calories, you need fuel, mm -hmm. carbohydrates, fats, sometimes proteins, and you need oxygen. And the oxygen comes from the air. You breathe it in. It goes to your muscles. It's being used. Then you blow off CO2. Okay. That's the idea. That's like basic biology, right? Yeah. You're, you're living organism. You're breathing. So what we do in the lab is we hook you up to a mask, and that measures the amount of oxygen you're breathing in versus the amount of CO2 you're blowing off. And with that, we can equate how much energy you're expending from your muscles. Nice. And so, so you look like Bane. Right. So you wear this mask, and you're covered up like that, and... We get you usually on a treadmill or a bike because that's what most people are used to. Yeah. Start them off nice warm up. And then we do a great, it's called a graded exercise test. So each minute or maybe every two minutes, you increase the resistance or you increase the incline or increase the speed until they fail, like until failure. So you're working. Failure mean you can't falling go anymore. or yeah. almost or yep, you're falling. Done. Somebody's catching you. We have a treadmill with a harness. So oh. if you eat it, the treadmill will stop immediately, That's which nice. comes in handy. Yeah, a little so. bit different than we had in the kinesiology lab when you and I were in college. <laughs> yeah, I think we had a old <laughs> treadmill that we that we maybe purchased or just take took from sure an old twenty four hour fitness. No, that treadmill was from like the forties, dude. And I think our <laughs> standard operating procedure was to have somebody behind the treadmill yeah. as the catcher. Yeah, it's like right. get the biggest dude and have him go behind them, and they <laughs> fall, catch him. Yeah. Like that's not safe. But yeah, yeah I mean, hey, when you can't go anymore, we got yeah. you. <laughs> On a bike, it's obviously easier because if you can't go anymore, you stand up and you can't pedal. So you're not going to fall off a stationary bike, but Makes on a treadmill, sense. you might fall off. But anyway, we get them going as fast as possible. And then we take that number at the end and yeah. the number the computer spits out an absolute number. So liters of oxygen that you breathe okay. per minute. Okay. So if you think about a two liter bottle, pretend like that's a hundred percent oxygen, that's two liters of oxygen. Most people, our size that are guys are probably going to be around the three and a half to four and a half liters per minute of oxygen range. Okay. Somebody like Lance Armstrong, there's actually data on this. Uh, when he was tested in his prime, he was at 6.1 liters Jeez. of oxygen per so minute. Double maybe yep. a standard male. Male. And, you know, and then also to bring it, like if me and you wanted to compare each other, because right, I'm a little heavier than you, you know, a few pounds. But if we wanted to say, oh, what's my VO2 compared to yours? Take well, our we would take it relative. Relative body weight. Yeah. So we would take that and do milliliters per kilogram per minute gotcha. of oxygen. And a good number for that, you know, an elite athlete male will be over 70 milliliters of oxygen per minute. Yeah. Um, an average Joe, 40, 43, something yeah. like that. But if you're over 40, I mean, you're, you know, you want to try and at least be there. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. we, so, I mean, just to kind of give you an idea, <clears throat> these guys that were 52 years old, the twins that mm -hmm. I was talking about that study. So they're identical twins. The one that had trained for 30 years, he was just over 50, 51 mm -hmm. mLs per kg per minute. And his brother was around 35. Okay. So that's a significant, that's like 30% yeah. 30 more uh, oxygen that his muscles are able to consume yeah. during exercise. And they also had the exact same amount of lean mass. So they had probably similar muscle mass, which okay. is crazy. So his muscles are way more efficient at, at oxidizing, um, you know, oxidative metabolism. Yeah. So. The sedentary twin just had a little bit more total mass on him, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah, he was a little he was bit heavier. heavier. Yeah, he was heavier. So he had more fat mass, significantly more fat mass. Sure. Um, yeah. But about the same lean mass. And actually, the untrained guy had a little bit more strength, too. He was stronger in the legs, but probably because he was carrying some weight around. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. if you had walked around with a 30-pound weight vest for 30 years, mm -hmm. you know, versus your brother who didn't do that and maybe trained a little bit more from an endurance standpoint, mm -hmm. chances are you might be a little stronger. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, that VO2 and the body comp were pretty 
we expected that. We expected if you're training sure. for 30 years, yeah. but we didn't realize it was going to be that much. I mean, 30% better VO2 is the highest that's been seen in the literature. It's big. Um, and I, I think yeah. what people usually equate that with is like, oh, then you'll be really good in the gym or really good on a bike or really good, you know, doing an activity. But it's also just a lot more efficient in life in general, right? Mm-hmm. Like getting up your stairs, playing with your kids, being able to go to the grocery store, having enough energy at the end of the day to do anything else mm-hmm. that's i mean that's that's even more important than vo2 max for exercise in my opinion yeah you know, when you take the general population well the good thing and health yeah if you're thinking about health and longevity and stuff vo2 max is going to decline with age after yeah. you hit 55 ish it doesn't matter if you're as fit as can be it's going to start decreasing yeah that's um, when you need to start blood doping yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> that'll bump it up a little bit but, but i think you know, if you can keep that VO2 max as high as possible, as long as possible, you're going to have better outcomes, especially if something bad happens, like you get hurt. Um, so there's a limit. So if this guy is really fit, he has 50 plus mm-hmm. mLs per kg per minute. Most people that are in their 70s or 80s or 90s that are walking around, they're probably cruising at like 20 mLs per kg per wow. minute. And the crazy thing is if they get if that number drops below 15, yeah. they're not going to be able to climb flights of stairs. They're not going to be mobile anymore. So to com- like they basically say that that 15 mLs per kg per minute is the limit for being on your own. Okay. Being able to live. Without being in a home yeah. or yeah. And maybe so, needing the, even the use of a, a chair or a something chair, like that. Yeah. If, yeah, sure. As soon as you get in a chair, then that number is going <clears> to drop precipitously and that's no good you know you want to be keep that number as high as possible yeah so if you start with it higher Mm -hmm. right if you're trained individual Mm -hmm. and you start with it higher it's probably going to be a little bit easier to keep that i mean yeah it's your total absolute loss will be more because you have more to lose but you'll still be higher than what somebody else started with so it's just like strength gains like if you stop lifting you just lost a whole bunch of strength, but you're still probably stronger than the average guy. Yeah. Because you started stronger. Yeah. Yeah. If you squat four or 500 pounds, it's going to take you a little longer to get down to where you can only squat 100 pounds than somebody who can only squat 100 pounds mm-hmm. to begin with. Yep. If you both stop training. Right. Nice. Okay. So yeah. you had these two twins. How'd you get them in the lab to begin with? Like, that's got to be. Yeah. It was kind of a crazy story. I was so in between my PhD and I, I'm a assistant professor at San Francisco State now. Okay. Uh, PhD a, was Ball State? Yeah. So I did my PhD in Indiana at Ball State University at the Human Performance Lab there. Okay. Um, graduated and I had some time in the summer. I had about six months or so in between that and my job at San Francisco. Okay. And so luckily, and Dr. Galpin, my uh, my buddy from college, from PhD school, was starting up a lab, starting up a new biochemistry lab. And he's like, hey, you want to help me out? I was like, hell yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. And so crashed with my parents for a few months over the summer, surfed in the mornings, went out to the lab in the afternoons, helped build his lab, you know. Academia was, yeah, life. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> hey, I was working my ass off. <laughs> yeah, but, no. For pennies, literally. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun, and I got to talking to some of the grad students, and one of the grad students there, we were pulling fibers, again, isolating these fibers, the non-sexy side of science, just hours and hours, hours, and hours of under repetitive. The microscope. Yeah, but we got to um, talking, and it turned out that she's like, my dad is a... It's a twin. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like an identical twin? Yeah. Oh, and he's an elite Iron Man. Oh, that's cool, too. It's like, kind of got the thing. And so, what, is his, what does his twin brother do? Oh, no exercise. Never? No, not that I know of. And then I was like, the wheel started turning. I was like, oh, this is the perfect. I mean, this is stuff that kind of. It couldn't. You couldn't recruit this. These people. Sure. Yeah. You couldn't find. You them. couldn't find. If you. If you. If your hypothesis was, hey, we want to do this. Yeah. Right. That's going to be extremely hard 
to try the, and find the percentage of identical twins is very small, let alone yeah. ones that have done different things for 30 years. Yeah. And so I was like, we got to do this. And as soon as I got to, um, you know, my job at San Francisco state, got a little bit of funding together, got these guys to come out, um, down at Fullerton we ran all the tests down there. Again, we had them in the lab. Each of them were in the lab for three days. And Dang. the problem with these kinds of studies, so this study, our, our question was, what's the difference between these guys physiologically? And our hypothesis obviously was that the, trained twin would be better in this 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 and this sure but we wanted to test everything like i wanted to get like diet we got as much as we could in three days and consumption yeah we did get some dietary recall stuff but as much as we could control for um yeah it's hard to i mean if i asked you what you eat for breakfast four days ago you know you're like hmm so it's best you could do yeah for our for our purposes we had them do it they logged their diet for a week that's perfect just before and that's but that's supposed to extrapolate to the last 30 years. I mean, we can't know what yeah, they ate for 30 years. Sure, so. sure. But as controlled as possible, we had them in there three days and just ran through all these studies. And I mean, the biopsy data actually is what was really interesting. So most people going back to fiber types have about 50% fast, 50% slow fibers with a mix of hybrids and, and that. Just general? General, okay. yeah, general person. And so we, we did the biopsy. We found that the untrained twin yeah, he had about 40% fast, 40% slow. The rest were hybrids or mixed fiber types. Okay. That's uh, what you'd expect to see in most people that are not trained. His brother is actually about 90% slow fibers. Wow. And then the rest are fast. Right. Yeah. And so that training for 30 years, imagine they started the same genetics, shifted his fiber type like 40 plus percent. In That's one direction, crazy which amount. is crazy. It, that just shows really how adaptable muscle is compared to every other organ. Because we look at their bone density and everything, and they're real. I mean, all this stuff's really Pretty similar. Close. Yeah, even though that the one twin had thirty pounds or so on his brother. Yeah, he had more. I think he had more bone density in his pelvis area and stuff that you'd expect sure. to. But You're carrying around weight, not as significant as looking at the fiber type fiber change types. between them. And then other markers. Again, we found markers of like satellite cells, which are the stem cells that make your muscle fibers grow and repair. We found that number was higher in the trained twin. Some markers of inflammation were a little bit higher, probably because he exercised a lot, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, you're going to have some inflammation when you're training. That's yeah. just uh, how you repair your sure. muscles. And Stress. Everything. Right. So again, a lot of the stuff was like, oh yeah, we'd expect that, but we didn't necessarily think we would see the difference that we saw. You and can that's make- what the big kind of... yeah. Let's just say 40% is um, significantly yeah. different. And since we had two statistically six, significant, right. 40% is plenty. <laughs> and our stats were pretty basic for this. It's not like we could run some crazy modeling sure. stuff because we had two, two people. Yeah. Two now, sam- if two. we had you know, 10 pairs of twins and they had different range of stuff, I mean, that study would be, that would take decades because we mm. have to search them out and everything. And this just kind of fell into our lap. So. Anyway, I'm just, I'm pretty excited about this. I'm trying to finish up the paper now. We're going to submit it um, for review soon. So. Okay. I'm trying to get that published. Trying to get that too. published as soon as we can so we can share more data with everybody. And yeah, it's got, we'll have all the tables, figures, all their data from uh, their diet, their training programs, everything will be in there. Okay. Have you guys, uh, so if somebody's 90% slow and he's obviously trained that, and then the other twin is 40, 40, 20, 20, we're kind of the unknown, the didn't hybrid, know what to do. Yeah. Have we done um, clinical or observational studies or kind of looked at why it's important or why it's kind of cool to have fibers that do know what to do? You know, like uh, why it might be better to have 
a slower fast than a hybrid than a hybrid I guess, you know i don't think um, yeah i don't think all those questions have been teased out yet i think what we what we definitely know that hybrids are probably not good because people that like i said the the kind of one of the key studies that came out about a decade ago was on um in the spinal cord injured people and okay. we found that they had a lot of these kind of fast hybrid type fibers okay and that's just a shift from not moving at all. Same thing happens when you go to space. So that's another cool model of unloading is astronauts. There's been several studies where they looked at astronauts for six months in outer space. They find, again, they shift to these hybrid type fibers. Older people have these. Yeah, because um, there's no gravity, so they lose tons yeah. of bone like in muscle right. density, right? And like the, their ability to walk around again. So even, mm -hmm. Aren't there um, like harnessed type squat and treadmill machines for space mm -hmm. that they've tried to figure out now to try and try and almost simulate gravity, right? Like simulate yeah. your muscles needing to work to stay no, yeah. where they're at. NASA's been working on this for years. I mean, they've been exercising in space since, you know, basically the uh, Skylab missions back in the yeah, 70s right. and 80s. They, they started making, you know, have you seen those old like I don't know what they're called. Those <laughs> the thigh, thigh the open up the thigh things. Yeah, the, but uh, they're the ones that you can stretch that are basically like th springs with handles on them. Oh, and you can do yeah. that. So they, a, in the Goonies, right? In the Goonies, yeah, the first part of the yeah, Goonies, where they wrap the older brother, where they wrap them up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they they took that up in the '70s and they were using that to do like upright rows and they were attaching nice. it to their feet and doing stuff. And yeah, they, perfect. They with had the cut off um, crew neck sweaters and everything. Right, and then they had that. And then the first <laughs> treadmill in space. You know what that was? Yeah. A piece of Teflon with socks, so they were wearing socks and walking on the Teflon and pushing their feet oh, against no it on the ground. Belt. No, 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 no belt. It was just a flat, soft surface, and they were just pushing. But those are better than nothing. And nowadays they have, you know, they've spent millions of dollars, and there's a treadmill, a bike, and then what they call the ARAD, the assistive resistance exercise device. It's like a squat type machine that moves, right? Yeah, it's almost you can like a imagine a clamshell. It's kind of a clamshell okay. that's attached by the hinge on the wall because the vibration is really important too. The it opens up and down and you know we can link to the the video on NASA yeah, if yeah. you want to check that out. Sure. But you can do squats, bench, deadlifts, rows, like anything with a bar that moves up and down, you can do that. You can't do anything side to side or rotational. So that's the limiting, you know, Obviously, in space, a lot of limiting factors come into play, but with the current machine up there, um, right now they're doing a couple big studies where they're looking at training, concurrent training. So they do a couple days a week on the treadmill or bike, a couple days a week on the resistance device. Um, okay. It's, like it's individualized per, for each athlete. individual type uh, yeah. program and, where they changed up a lot. Yeah, and the goal for that is to just maintain. Yeah, right, because what, what's the average stay is like a six, four to six month, type thing we're up there on the right? and they lose yeah. on the international ridiculous space amount station, of muscle yeah tens of percents of muscle mass and muscle strength depending on the person and then bone density you lose about one percent of bone density per month and you're not space. that's something that you may or may not you're not getting some of that back no. sometimes right? especially you're, older people and yeah. most average age for astronauts is 40 plus think about postmenopausal women they're already having problems with bone sure. density yeah, yeah. so and then plus, so you got muscle, bone, and then radiation. 
So we have this thing called the ozone layer that happens to like protect us from all the rays from the sun, right? If you're in outer space or even in low Earth orbit. Looking through a window. You get a little bit of, of help from this magnet kind of around the Earth. Sure. But a lot of those rays are going to go right through the spaceship, right through your clothes, right through your suit, into your body. And then, you know, what is radiation? It could cause cancer, cause all kinds of unwanted growth, um, mess with all kinds of cellular processes. They're trying to figure out how that works too. So if you want to go to Mars or something, you're going to be bombarded with solar radiation from the sun, like nonstop. Who wants to go to Mars, man? That'd be, um, I would do a there and trip. back. I don't think I would do the one way yeah, trip. I'm there and back, <laughs> yeah. <right>? yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many people would sign up. I mean, if you know, Hey, this is, this is one way. You're leaving. You can't have a lot of friends or family. Who, I mean, you know what I mean? Who would just be like, all right, I'm out. And it's, it's not like be... you could sit here like us talking on the phone where it's maybe a second lag. you got 20-minute lag. Yeah, or more, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how accurate some of that Martian stuff was. But, like, they were, you know, they had a lag of a long time. Yeah, well, if you think of it, uh, it's just your radio signal to Mars is traveling the speed of light. Mars is like 20 light minutes or whatever from Earth at any given time. So it's about 20 minutes. It's like from here, the sun's about eight or nine light minutes. So if the sun were to explode, we wouldn't really know for eight minutes, so, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah. Nuts. yeah, that's how far away. And it's relatively close compared to everything else. In but space. I guess it wouldn't matter because nobody would know that it actually exploded until it went dark here yeah and i think it would freeze immediately and we would not know yeah that would be crazy (laughs) that's a tangent we're like going we're going down the rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) but no yeah exercising in space is really important nutrition too so they're they're starting to you know do stuff with a lot of protein just the same thing you would do on earth if you want to gain mass yeah you're gonna do that in space you need some protein you Mm -hmm. have to be in a caloric surplus anabolic steroids actually are on the table too i don't know if they have any immediately plans to do that it's not a bad but, idea yeah i mean we demonize them a lot here right because mm-hmm. we can never i mean if you come from a good place you you oh that's cheating you can't do that right but mm-hmm. it, if there's like clinical you know really good applications for mm-hmm. some anabolics like it's, it's just weird there's, that people there's have no such cheating in space yeah, you're just trying to survive you're in trying an environment to be yeah you're trying to not lose bone yeah you're trying to survive in an environment that humans aren't supposed to live in and we're doing pretty well so we've been consistently humans have consistently lived in space on the international space station since 1999 so that's insane yeah we're four going to six on, months we're going on 20 years yeah um and then the longest for the u.s astronauts was scott kelly that went up for a year last year dang um yeah crazy i mean there's been some cosmonauts in, from russia that have been up for longer than a year as well dang. Um, on the mirror there was that was a big space station that was up yeah because what else i mean you you with in regards to nutrition you only have so many options when everything has to be freeze dried, right? right? I mean, it's space it's, food, right? Yeah, it, like it has to. I mean, it's got to be a food that you can. What about do that water soluble vitamins that you're going to lose in that freeze drying process? Those have to be taken in pill form or in whatever liquids they can bring up. Yeah, or like recycling a, water. To, D three, like vitamin D three, is way better when it's in a fat soluble form, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you can get a pill that has like a nice fat. Mm-hmm. gelatin gel around it with vitamin d3 you're going to be able to absorb that a lot better but that's a huge i mean nasa spending money on that too i was um talking to a guy from texas a&m that's doing research it's sponsored by the usda and nasa and they're looking at different types of powdered eggs how co- you know because you can't bring chicken eggs up to oh, space yeah. <laughs> you have to powder them but then you lose a lot of the cholesterol and protein and stuff in there so how can we make the best egg for space like that's their whole question that's right? crazy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's insane yeah and cholesterol is a good thing. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think we've that's something that we may have gotten wrong. 
in the past. Yeah. I mean, that's the cool part about science is always changing. So never, you know, like you we were talking about earlier, you're never dealing absolutes, right? You're yeah. like Sith's dealing absolutes, sir. <laughs> yeah. I think They're that's Star Wars. I think that's the part <laughs> I like about science. Like, sure, you know, we're all human and we have egos. So it's hard to not bring your ego in and want to be right, you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote, right. Now, I'm right in science. Mm-hmm. That's why I like science. The basis of it is trying to uncover the truth. But if something comes along and it's closer to the truth or better than yours, you have to step aside and say, okay, this is now the new way we're doing mm-hmm. it, which is pretty cool. Like, right, there's not, you don't get stuck in these ruts or you try not to get stuck in these ruts. Yeah. Now, sometimes these ruts could be 30 years, right? 30 years, fat's bad. Mm-hmm. That's a long rut. Maybe not in the entire frame of human existence, 30 years isn't long, mm-hmm. but that is a long rut to be stuck in. That's why I like science is because it's, you're trying not get stuck in those ruts. I guess. Yeah. And if something else comes along, that's, been studied and has a a better outcome you yeah. know you're going to adopt that and way i of think thinking, hopefully mo- most people a lot of people at least have a kind of a negative view of like well those scientists don't want to be proven wrong because that will just you know ruin their career discredit or yeah, yeah i mean so it's true like sometimes you'll build your whole career on some model or something like that and it could be shown wrong and that may be a big ego blow some people you know, some scientists might keep fighting and that's good because you want this discourse. If the field starts shifting one way, eventually you're going to be proven wrong. And so you're going to be pushed out. But, you know, for me, if my say, let's say we figure out how to exercise in space and it's perfect and we got it and like, dang, what's the next question? There's always another question Then you know, you're never going to run out of work. So like scientists aren't going to be like, I'm out of work now. Like, there's always questions like we keep going down the rabbit hole farther and farther and farther. Just trying to uncover more things. Yeah. I mean, cause so I said, I was talking about how we measured <clears throat> fiber types. So mm-hmm. we measured fiber types with this protein, myosin heavy chain. Right. And, uh, the way you view it is through that microscope, that, um, what's that micron the microscope you guys use? Oh, so the confocal microscope. Confocal microscope. So we can yeah. use that to look at the cells and then we can take the cells and we can divide the proteins out. We can look at what type of protein there are. Like that's how the fiber type is. But then we can also look at what types of genes are being expressed. So if you remember this hierarchy going back in time to biology 101, you got genes turned into basically an mRNA, which is a messenger, get turned into a protein. Okay. So there's like three levels. And we can measure that mRNA, which we call gene expression. So in this twin study, we did it all. We did proteins, we did gene expression, we did you know images of the cells, all kinds of stuff. Um, to get a whole picture, yeah, we can go down the rabbit hole more. Now we're talking about things like epigenetics. I don't even know if you want to go down that one, but that's even bigger. Open it up, <laughs> okay. Dr. Bagley. So, so genetics, right? You have a genome. That's what you're made of, your genes. Yeah. yeah. They're all wrapped up in chromosomes. This guy has an APAC. It's hard for me to get there. But it might not be because of your genome. It might be because of your epigenome. Okay. So the way your genes are wrapped up can kind of dictate how easy it is to pull that out and make a protein out of it. Okay. The epigenome is the way they're wrapped up. So epi means outside of the genome. Okay. So these are proteins and molecules that pack your genes up. One more step removed when you're looking mm-hmm. at it, right? Yeah, One more step. Your out. hierarchy of, you got, here's the hierarchy of the whole body. You got, like, say, a muscle. Then inside the muscle, you got cells. Then inside the cells, you got proteins. The proteins are made from genes. The genes basically are controlled by the epigenome, how they're wrapped up. 
And there's probably even more down that. It's just going to keep going. Like, yeah, because yeah. you're going to keep trying to uncover, mm-hmm. right, more and more and more. Yeah. And so, you know, in 2001, when the Human Genome Project was finished, everybody thought, wow, that's it. We're going to figure out the cure for everything. And then we're like, shit, there's an epigenome too. <laughs> like, and there's there's more. Yeah. yeah. And so now Dang it just it. keeps going down. And it's good. I mean, it's... Yeah. There's just, there's too much... The problem is we only live to be, what, 80 years plus. So I wish we could live longer so we could actually study all this, you know. Without having to pick up on the research from yeah. the, you know, human being that came before you. Which might come with its own package of id and ego and like, oh, that Bias. was that person's work. Yeah. I don't want to, I want to do something different, mm-hmm. right? I can't just keep living along on this person's work. I have to change it somehow because it needs to be different for me. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot, you know, human beings are flawed. Like but, we're all flawed, which is a good thing though. But that's what the one, one of my favorite quotes kind of falls into that. And this is going to be the theme of my podcast coming out. So plug again, yeah, past class another plug. podcast, past class, P-A-S-S class past podcast. podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> the quote is from Sir Isaac Newton and is, um, if I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. Very so cool. even Isaac Newton was using research from the past to figure out, you know, the laws of thermodynamics, which are like used everywhere in every field in the world now. Um, So he knew, you know, he had to basically look back and build on, build on. Now people are building on Isaac Newton and then we have physics has just gone crazy. Even nuttier. Yep. And we have amazing television programs uh, that come from that. Yeah. And that's all that matters. And our cell phones. (laughs) Cell phones and television programs. Two camera television programs with a a little uh, laugh track in the background that makes it seem really funny. Yep. If Isaac Newton was here today to see what his all of his research has accomplished. <laughs> he would call us all witches for having these Probably. things in our pockets. What are these things? Yeah. yeah. We need to send a, a letter. We, we don't do that anymore, Sir Isaac Newton. Yeah. Email. What is the E stand for? Electronic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very good. Nice, man. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, I think um, the last thing we're going to chat about is possibly what our physiology looks like in the future and are we tapping out right are we like are we starting to slow down on what our our potential i guess um like our potential uh progression looks like right we have somebody who used to high jump back in the day and we can go a little higher and a little higher and a little higher but mm-hmm. are we now kind of leveling off with our potential human, yeah human right. potential it always comes up as we're recording this now i don't know when it's going to air but the winter olympics are on now right so True. we always watch the olympics and yeah. there's always records being set yeah but not always right some records have been held for the last decade some mm-hmm. have been held for 20 years um so yeah a paper came out you know a couple months ago and it was talking about the limits of humans like what are our limits physiologically um in relation to performance and in you know longevity think about people have been getting living longer and longer and longer for the past century mainly due to modern medicine modern medicine vitamins, keeping people older yeah you nutrition know. Yeah, yeah exercise um yeah all that so people are getting older living longer performing better but what they've seen you know since the, about 1980 so about 30 or so years is that all this has started to plateau so mm. before that there was a linear increase in performance and somebody ran the mile in five yeah. minutes and it was four and a half and it yeah. was sub four and then once Boom. that per- first person did that in yeah. the late seven years something then everybody ran sub four then it was even, yeah yeah it was roger bannister in 1954 uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah i remember that 54 was a good year didn't they think <laughs> uh if you ran a sub four minute mile like wasn't the 
the like current thinking, like your heart would explode, you Probably. would die, yeah. right? Like nobody can do that. Yeah. It's impossible. That yeah. word that comes up all the time. But these impossible. were the times though when people were running marathons and it was cheating to drink water though. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was like true, in the twenties right? though. So yeah. we've come a long way since then, but yeah. I think- Before you start to marathon, yeah. you need to eat 10 waffles. That's what you're supposed to do. But I think the question is since those times we've been using science for nutrition, exactly. right? That's why yeah. we have these supplements that are dialed in. We have food Testing, that's dialed in. We retesting. Yeah. Um, so how dialed can we get? And then are we there? Are we at the point where humans in general are not going to get much better? And I think, you know, we'll always have a little bit better shoe, a little bit better wetsuit or whatever, you know, you can keep improving on those, yeah. but you know, they're still like kind of the jury's out. Are we plateauing? Is this, you know, 2020, the, when pe humans are peaked because we've been training for 40 years, excellent, like the perfect way, or is there still room to improve? And I think there's still some room to improve, but I think it's going to take some big leaps in science to get, you know, bigger leaps in performance and longevity and stuff, which still yeah. probably would happen. True. Like maybe changes to an embryo, right? Like if, uh, like a CRISPR type scenario. Yeah. Where you're like, hey, I want my kid to be a world record power lifter, mm -hmm. you know, almost to where that's like something. I mean, it's kind of creepy to think about, but... You're talking about like designer babies? Yeah, designer yeah. babies. Something you can decide like, hmm, I want my kid to have amazing certain types of muscle fibers to be really good at tennis. Yep. You know? I, mean, we, I, don't, I don't think we're that far from that. Um, so you mentioned CRISPR. So CRISPR-Cas9 is this enzyme that's found naturally in bacteria. Mm -hmm. And... Um, in the last decade, humans have basically hijacked this enzyme to be able to produce or be able to edit genes in anything, in, in you know, plants, which sure. we do all the time. Like, think about farming. Yeah. Farming is, we've been cloning and, yeah. and gene editing for decades and decades, and that's the only reason why we can feed seven plus billion people sure. on the planet. But when we start gene editing with humans, which again is possible, um, the the problem that you run into is that when does this a human and when is it something else? Yeah, exactly. When did we now create some kind of new species? Oh, well, yeah. In the, can you call this a human being? What is a human being? You know, like that's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, if this gene <laughs> editing, the gene, there's still some problems with implementing it in a live human, but it can be done where we could take an More. embryo, like you said, a designer baby and change some genes to improve the odds of some traits happening and other traits not happening. Again, that's, it's still, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get at this stage. Yeah. Um, like if you're talking about eye color or something, okay. Like this is, you know, yeah, you not can probably as, change yeah. those, but um, like, if you're like, I want this person to compete in endurance, there's a lot of genes that are related to endurance activity that you're going to have to manipulate. Um, and we don't know all of them. Not, not, not yet. Yeah, I mean, there's so close. many. And the problem is we know maybe which ones they are, but we don't know how they interact. True. Yeah. And that's why we do all these studies in animals to try to. And we only know the level that we have, right? Like mm -hmm. when you said the genome, then epigenetics, mm -hmm. like we only, there could be 800 other layers that we don't even know yet. You there's know? Like, probably other control, right? Yeah. So we know the basic machinery inside of a cell. Sure. But the controls that we're starting to figure out, some of my friend, uh, my friend, Dr. Greg Grosicki's at Tufts, he's starting to look at things called micro RNAs. Okay. So I mentioned mRNA is a messenger RNA and this gets sent to be a protein. Micro RNAs are just small RNAs and they actually go and send signals to change the way proteins are made. So they're another controller. So, I mean, 
it's a city. Like inside your cell is a city. There's stuff moving around. Some stuff you might not know what it is. Like, why is that guy sitting on the corner? I don't know. But maybe he has a purpose. Maybe if something breaks over there, that's the guy that fixes it. Mm. So you look through this cell and you're like, everything has a purpose probably. And we don't necessarily know what some of the things in the cell are quite for yet. Yeah. And if we start tampering with things, I mean, it's kind of like wheat, right? Mm -hmm. Like the wheat that we call wheat now, Mm -hmm. probably shouldn't call it wheat. We should probably just call it... Like a (laughs) modified thing that we've changed thousands of times that we call wheat because that's what it was when it started. But it's not, it's not the same thing. Like when, you know, it was like, oh, my grandmother never had a problem with wheat. Yeah, because she ate something different than what wheat is now. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a little bit nerve wracking to think about that. Well, all the food that you eat is not the same as was around hundreds of years ago. Of course, right? Like even apples and bananas. Oh, yeah. We were probably never supposed to eat that. Like, if you look at a banana, how it, what, what it was originally, it's, it's does a little not green. Look good. Like, it's yeah, disgusting. it's probably really um, yeah tart. Probably the That's apples. Think about apples so were small, teeny, teeny. teeny yeah, that, everything we have is genetically modified, which is fine. I love it. it tastes delicious. Yeah, like, sure. I have no problem. With but it. going to the grocery yeah. store and those apples are super shiny yeah. in Whole Foods, mm-hmm. and it it entices me to pay eight dollars a pound mm-hmm. for something sh- super shiny. Mm-hmm. apple that we know it now and it's been okay to do that in plants forever i mean we've sure. been breeding plants forever and then so we now think. we're editing them know. but is it okay to do that in humans and other animals that are like primates and stuff like that those are the questions that ethically you run into um, yeah. and the problem is too when you change the human they call it the human germline right so if you get genetically modified the thing is, if you had kids, they're genetically modified too, and they don't have a say in that. Yeah. So when you think about ethics, like, yeah, we can change whatever you want if you if you say that's okay. You're signing off. You're a grown up adult, or whatever. Like, but you, that's going to affect your kids and their kids and their kids and their kids, and that is the question now. Is that okay? Yeah, because you're not just signing off on your life. Right. You're now signing off on potential future generations and how exactly. that will how would that affect them? Maybe it's not as good as we think, you know, we can only look so far into the future. And when you start messing with these genes, like, yeah, especially when we just barely learned about like what that is. Like, yeah. Right. Like Like 16 years ago, we mapped the first (laughs) genome and that's not that long ago. (laughs) And we're already starting to have private technology companies that are like, okay, we, yeah, we get it. We get it. We get it. Now Mm -hmm. let's mess around with it. No. Yeah. And you know, in, in China, there's definitely been somebody that used the CRISPR-Cas9 enzyme on human embryos and Mm. it, you know, and it worked, did something. So there, there could be designer babies now. Change your hair color to begin with. And then, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, you, like I said, in 1990 something dolly the sheep remember that was cloned and that was the first mammal that was ever cloned that was like when jurassic park came out and like jurassic park is totally feasible now if we had the dna yeah that was 1993 1993 is jurassic park yeah they took the frogs dna or something like that's what i don't remember how they explained the movie but yeah so they they basically took the dna that they found from a mosquito that bit a dinosaur that was stuck in amber yes. and then they there's there. missing parts so they attached the frog it's not that simple yeah like it of was, course <laughs> they, they had a little cartoon guy yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. all animals in jurassic yeah. park are female yeah. we bred them that way yeah <laughs> um yeah life finds a way <laughs> but, but like um the new thing now is woolly mammoths so woolly mammoths didn't go extinct that long ago like sure. thousands of years ago and they're finding totally frozen ones that you can get the the whole DNA from to try and clone to clone them, but the problem is you can't. We don't. We can't like have a gestational, you know, 
have a baby mammoth grown in another mammoth because we don't have that, but elephants, modern elephants are close cousins to woolly mammoths. So they could easily make a hybrid elephant mammoth and have it like you an, know, grow inside of an, uh, a female. Fertilize a modern day elephant's female eggs with, yeah, with egg. woolly mammoth DNA yeah. from frozen woolly Totally mammoth. feasible. And it would basically make a really hairy elephant <laughs> with like woolly <laughs> little. Yeah, and that's, I mean, they make ligers. <laughs> like that's, that's a hybrid. Yeah. Make, you know, In donkeys. Donkeys, donkeys sure. yeah, yeah. I mean, true. like think about all these hybrid animals that they can make. So Yeah. We just have no idea what that would do to the... They like probably the natural wouldn't. food chain or you know what I mean like yeah. how that would change anything yeah like human beings have a decent history of messing anything up by trying to introduce new species because we don't know what's going to happen change things didn't Australia like... have trouble with that they had a problem with rats so then they introduced cats or oh, something like that they probably and brought the rats from England the right? cats yeah. screwed everything else up and then mm -hmm. they introduced something else and like you know and now everything is running rampant and we're like oh man Maybe we shouldn't have done that first introduction 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It happens everywhere. Invasive species take over and stuff. In California sure. even too. I mean, we have a lot of invasive species here. Yeah. And there's, um, speaking of Australia, the uh, eucalyptus trees around here, not native to California. They smell no. delicious and they're beautiful. They look really pretty. They look pretty. But those things fall down when it's windy and there's no predator. There's no koala bears hanging up out up there eating <laughs> the plants. So they'll grow anywhere. But And I think... Mm. When you talk about koala bears, because we went when we were in Australia and the lady was telling us, she's like, yeah, these things are great, but like if it wasn't for human beings, they're probably, they're not like the best at surviving. Well, yeah. Right? Like I, there probably wouldn't be they're just koala cute, bears right. and panda bears in a wild setting. They don't really have that much defense. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Koala bears aren't even bears. I don't know what they're marsupials <laughs> yeah. or something. <laughs> something like a sloth. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, I guess we have a wild sloth, sloth that in survives. South America. Yeah. I saw a sloth in uh, Costa Rica one time. Mandy and I were there. Spotted it on the tree. <laughs> totally looks like a part of a tree. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. Huge yeah. talons. Yeah. They don't move very fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Very cool. All right, sir. Well... I don't know how long that's been. I think we just did an hour. Nice. So, it's a solid. Been, yeah. yeah, good chat. Good chatting with you. I'm happy to come back anytime. Talk yeah. science. Thanks for uh, have, being on, man. And I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see uh, when is this twin study coming out. And <laughs> so hopefully as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to follow more of our stuff, you can check out my website is musclephyslab.com. Okay. M-U-S-C-L-E-P-H-Y-S lab. Or you could check out um, our kinesiology website at San Francisco State. Yep. It's, and uh, what's that kines website? It's kin.sfsu.edu. Okay. And if people want to become a part of studies that you're doing or help out by donating to the lab, are they able to do that somehow? Yeah, definitely. Just go to our Muscle Phys Lab website. You can get my email on there. Email me directly. And if you'd like to donate, there's a donate button on the bottom of the front page. That'd be awesome. Very cool. Mm -hmm. um, where can we find you on the social webs? Where do you spend most of the time? Twitters, Instagrams? I'm mostly on the Instagrams these days. Uh, a little bit on Twitter. Um, but you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Jimmy Bagley. D-R Jimmy Bagley? Yes. Okay. Or at Muscle Fizz Lab is the lab one. So that's kind of the more professional. The Dr. Jimmy Bagley is the more personal, but still always science stuff on there too. Very cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks, Sean. All right. Thank you everyone so much for checking out the podcast. I love you all so much. And thank you to the sponsors of the show, Primal Goods Company. 
go to primalgoodsco.com, enter Life Ready at checkout for 10% off your order. Also, thank you to Life Ready Foods. Go to lifereadyfoods.com to check out our Thrive Protein Powder, enter Life Ready at checkout, and save 10% off your order. So go to primalgoodsco.com and lifereadyfoods.com, enter Life Ready at checkout. Okay, folks, that is all for today. On the next podcast, we have Drew Amoroso. Drew's an awesome guy with a great company called Move Associates. Check him out on the next show. That's it for today. Love y'all.